0: 1 Timothy, chapter 2, starting in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, (laughs) lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Dear Lord, today's passage was a message to the people of Ephesus by Paul, and we know, Lord, that all your word is is breathed and inspiration from you. So Lord, today give Pastor Matt wisdom as he presents uh, some of these difficult verses, Lord, for us to understand. and. Show us to be um, humble enough to, to look at our lives and to say, what can we learn from this passage, Lord? Um, I pray for all of us that you will open our eyes and our ears to what we are to hear, and I ask this in Christ Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Well, some of you came to church this morning, and when you heard her read that passage, you were like, oh, no, not this passage. I want to let you know uh, uh, that is, uh, would be my feeling exactly as well. Um, I uh, uh, One of the things before we get into it, I want to let you know that 15 minutes after the service ends, so after this uh, message is done, um, we will have a, uh, a Q&A um, uh, for those of you who have any questions. Uh, about this text or anything related to that so right after the service um, after you can pick up your kids and stuff your kids can hang out in here um, I'll have a Q&A it'll be I'll be set up right here and I just want you to know that's available for you if you have questions and when we come to difficult texts that are maybe hard to understand I think we'll make this a normative practice um, for you so that you don't walk away with more questions than answers um, now one of the things you may not realize is that generally, not exclusively, but generally we teach verse by verse. Uh, we go through books of the Bible and we, we go verse by verse, we go passage by passage, and we try to understand God's word. Why do we do this? Because we believe that the whole counsel of God, the whole word of God is God-breathed. And that it is it is helpful for us to know it and when we come to passages that are hard rather than looking away or running away from them I think it's really helpful to dive in and to rather than uh, uh, wrestle with our faith in the sense that we're struggling to have faith but rather to wrestle with these texts with faith in Christ knowing that this is good for us so we're going to we're going to do that this morning so before we do this I want to give you just some basics of understanding of how we unpack passages because I think it's possible that many of you guys come in here and you don't have much knowledge of how do I come to the points that I make? How do we do this? How do we do this thing we call teaching the word of God? Well, there are three basic steps that I go through when I put together a passage. First, I go, I start with uh, exegesis. Now that word is E-X-E-G-E-I-S-I-S. That is, that is not the word Jesus with X in front of it, but rather it is, um, it's a, it's a Latin word that means like, for lack of a better, to bring out the text, to bring out the truth of the text, to explain the text. When we are doing exegesis in the text, we are seeking to understand what this text meant to the original hearers of the audience, or the original audience, the people who heard this for the first time. So this would be, how did Timothy understand it, and how did the church of Ephesus understand it? When we, to do this, to try to understand this, we do kind of uh, two things. Um, In fact, I heard uh, uh, from the guy who taught me uh, how to preach, one of the things he said, the most important thing you can learn about Bible study is context, context, and context. So we start with understanding the context of the text. Where does the text fall in, uh, in, the, in, in Scripture? What's going on in the text? What has been addressed so far? We try to follow the lines of reasoning to understand what a text says so we don't see a text in isolation, but we see it as a part of the whole. Second, we dive into the original languages. This is how do we, we understand the uh, context from uh, the text. We try to dive into the original languages, understanding what these words mean, because sometimes they're hard to translate words into English, words that could be translated one way or another way, and, and the people who translate the Bible from Greek into English have to make a decision. They can't just put all the words there, so oftentimes they're making decision. So we dive into the original meanings. Whenever you hear me uh, bring out a Greek word, the reason why I do that is to help you understand maybe a more fulsome view of what that word means so we, we start by following the lines of reasoning the the context within the text we second we dive into the original language third we study parallel passages looking for harmony looking for what 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 was going on in these other places that might mean something similar here so first when we're studying when when we're looking for exegesis we start by uh... understand the context from the text second we understand we try to understand the context from culture now this comes secondary to context within the text however it is also very important so we try to understand the place the setting Um, the people, the culture of the place that we're studying so that we might truly get it. Think of it this way, when Jesus is teaching uh, 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 at Caesarea Philippi, many of you guys don't know this, but the context would say that no good Jewish kid would ever go to Caesarea Philippi. It was kind of a den of sin. But Jesus brought all of his disciples there. And then when Jesus says, uh, 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 I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, most of us don't realize that in Caesarea Philippi, where they were, if you look back, there is a, there is a, a big opening in the rock that, that emits gas and it's called the gates of Hades. Now, understanding that context helps you understand that Jesus is likely pointing at the gates of Hades when he is saying that. He's brought them there for this very purpose, to teach them this very thing. Similarly, uh, uh, when you hear Jesus describing Samaritans, like when Jesus, um, when Jesus talks to the woman at the well or when he tells the parable of the good Samaritans, if you don't know the cultural context that Samaritans were hated by the Jews generally, that they were discriminated against by the Jews, then you don't get the fulsome meaning of the text. So you need to understand both what the text says and what the line of logic is in the text, but also the context to the best of our ability to understand it so that's what we do in exegesis so what I what I try to do is I try to explain the text to you second we interpret the passage now this is the trickiest part this is the hardest part once we understand what we think the passage means to its original audience we seek to draw out the timeless truth found in the passage we don't do this woodenly um, by this by, by inflexibly. you know we try to understand the principle we try to understand the timeless truth and what it means so I'll give you an example when we read "Greet one another with a holy kiss," we don't interpret that woodenly, and I don't start walking up to all of you and start kissing you. Is that fair? You might say, "Well, but the Bible says it, and we we should do what the Bible says." So maybe we should start greeting one another with a, uh, with, with, a uh, with a holy kiss. Now I would say. Um, In a culture where that would be appropriate that would make sense but in our culture that wouldn't make sense what but the but the principle of greeting one another with a holy kiss is something we should absolutely do the timeless truth is that we should warmly lovingly engage one another embracing each other caring for one another when we see one another do you see this so we interpret the passage we pull out the timeless truth so we exegete then we interpret and then finally we apply the timeless truth to our modern context. What we do is we say, "What's the truth that we see over here in 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 the original in, 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 and the original audience would have heard? What's the timeless truth that we can draw forward to ours, and then we apply it to our modern context?" So, for example, if we were saying, "Greet one another with a holy kiss," I might, I, if I was preaching on that, I might bring up to you guys the idea that. Um, oftentimes it, it, we don't have a culture where we warmly greet one another, where we spend a lot of time um, really listening and caring and connecting and physically connecting with one another, giving hugs and handshakes and, um, and, and, and actually showing affection for one another in culturally appropriate ways for us. So we seek to. So, so just to kind of put it together, you have the EIA. This is what I do when I preach, okay? Okay. Um, this is exegete, understand and explain the original meaning, interpret, draw out the timeless meaning, and apply um, that is, apply the timeless truths to our life. When we do this properly, we must always, always start with only one presupposition and no others. All right, oh, we, we start by interpreting the text with only one presupposition this is that Scripture is true, God inspired, inerrant, and useful for teaching, reproofing, correction, and training up in righteousness. We start with the presupposition that this book is true. Over and against every other thing, so we don't start with any other presuppositions that we bring to the text. Because if we do, we commit the chief error of false teachers, which is what what Bible, Bible interpreters call or or biblical scholars call Jesus This is when we take uh, when we take a presupposition we have and we insert it into the text. When we bend scripture to fit our personal presuppositions and impose our will on the text rather than letting the text impose its will on us. So with that being said, why am I going into this? Because this morning I'm going to seek to do this. I'm going to seek seek to exegete clearly, interpret faithfully, and to apply passionately the text that we see before us. This text is not easy. In fact, many of you have likely heard these verses quoted in a ham-fisted way that didn't edify you or teach you or encourage you, but rather put you in your place as a less than person. And before we go any further, I want you to say this to you, if that's happened to you, I'm sorry that you went through that. That is not the point of this text. And it was ne- this text was never meant to push one gender down and exalt another gender. So before we go any further, I want you to hear that that people who've done that to you, people who might have said these things to you, people who might have uh, quoted these verses out of context to you and eisegeted them in a way that caused harm to you, I want to start by saying, I'm sorry that you went through that. And my hope is is that this morning, maybe we can reconstruct your understanding of this text and maybe even cause you to glory in the truth that's found in this text rather than uh, being frustrated with it. It's my goal to interpret this text faithfully. However, many people I respect, in their honest, sincere um, uh, uh, push uh to, to understand what this text means come to slightly different conclusions than I'll come to. I think they're wrong, but I still regard them as close friends and brothers and sisters. Why? Because while this issue is important and it's not to be diminished, it is not most important. The gospel is most important. We must triage uh... this doctrine properly we don't elevate it to primary importance but we don't disregard it as having no importance whatsoever we can worship alongside brothers and sisters who have different convictions about a text like this and love them as family especially when both of us have come to our conclusions about this text from our from doing our best to faithfully interpret the text um, rather than isogeating this now so before we go any forward, I want you to know this: If you bristle at this text, if um, if, if you look at this text and you say I don't, I, I don't think this text is true, or I don't think it's right, or things like this, I want you to understand the problem is not with this text; it's with your heart. The Bible makes it clear that the Word of God is, is there for our edification, and if you don't want to look to this Word of God and let it inform you and teach you, there's a problem with our heart. In fact, we're we're saying, actually, I don't want to give the Bible authority in my life. You're you're saying, I want to be authority in my life, and I want to reject certain scriptures, which is what some have done. So before we go into this text, I want to start by praying. I want to ask all of you to take a, a few moments and to pray, to ask God for wisdom, to ask God for ears to hear, to ask God to give you a clear understanding of this as we go through it. And then we will start diving in, breaking this down verse by verse, exegeting, interpreting, and applying it as we go. Let's pray. Lord, as we take a few moments to pray, Jesus, I ask that, God, you would be sovereign in this place, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, and, God, that you would give us clear direction for your glory. Lord, would you fill us this morning? Would you direct us this morning? Would you direct my mouth to speak only truth? Lord, would you take out any presuppositions I might be coming to this text with, and Lord, help me to speak the truth faithfully? Lord, would you, uh, Lord, would you tear down any, any strongholds of the enemy, any, any footholds of the enemy in our lives, Lord, that have, so- that have kept us from enjoying you? Lord, would you allow this text to nourish our souls this morning for your glory? I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So, we're in 1 Timothy, we've been walking through 1 Timothy as we've been going, and um, we we understand that Paul has been addressing issues within the Ephesian church, and he's been addressing them um, through Timothy. Uh, Obviously, somehow, Paul has found out what's going on in the Ephesian church. Likely, Timothy has written him a letter, but he might have received reports in other ways, shapes or forms, but Paul is addressing what he knows to be issues in the Ephesian church, and he's giving instructions to Timothy. Now this context in chapter Two we saw last week it started off with times of corporate prayer together uh, Paul is specifically challenging them on how they might pray when they should pray how they all the things they should do in prayer and he's still in the context of corporate worship corporate times of prayer and worship together now Paul is giving the instructions that we're going to go through in this text for a reason to correct if you I, I said this a couple of weeks ago if you ever see a sign that has that that's weird that sign is there for a reason if it says Please, you know, if it says something like, please do, do not eat other people's yogurt out of the refrigerator, you know that somebody has eaten other people's yogurt out of the refrigerator. Is that fair? So you don't give instructions uh, like, 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 like these kind of instructions, do not do this, unless those things are being done. So Paul is clearly addressing issues that he knows about in the Ephesian church, and he's commanding Timothy, he is get, actually, he's encouraging Timothy to address these things. So let's get into verse 8. Let's start with verse 8. It says, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. Evidently, there were men in Ephesus who needed to hear this. There were men who were struggling with anger and fighting and all sorts of quarreling. Men who lost their temper, who flared up with anger. Men who would be quick to fight in situations. Paul's exhortation to Timothy is to instruct them to pray. Before you raise your voice in anger, raise your hands in prayer. Before you berate someone for failing, talk to Jesus, asking him to draw near to you, asking him to give you patience, wisdom, mercy, and grace. I want you to ask yourself this question, men and and women, but we'll start with men here. How many huge fights in your house would have been healthy discussions if you had simply stopped and prayed when you felt your anger begin to boil up? How many times would you have had a fruitful discussion rather than a, than, than a, than a, a knock-down, drag-out argument? I'm going to bet many of you guys can look back and say, I wish I would have prayed. What if, we, what if we lived in a culture? What if our church was a place where men in the body were the first to jump at the opportunity to pray? What if we were a church full of men who believed in the power of prayer? Men who initiated prayer with their family? Men who initiated prayer in the church? Men who who sought to, who, who, who see prayer as a first response, not a last resort. Don't worry, women, I'll get to you in a second. So back to the text. Evidently, these men were filled with anger. This was going on in the Ephesian church, causing disputes and causing uh, disturbances in their worship. How did this cause a disturbance in the worship? Well, Many of you guys have experienced this. If, you ever, if you've ever been to a church service where people are angry at each other, maybe they're even seething with anger at each other, maybe there's disputes or unresolved uh, uh, court fighting bubbling underneath the surface, you know how distracting it can be, how it can draw your attention away from Jesus, how hard it can be to even come to church when you know that there's fighting happening in the body of Christ, when you know that people are angry with each other. You will see throughout this passage, Paul is deeply concerned about that the church gatherings be for God's glory alone, and anything that is distracting from that should be addressed. Paul is desiring that the t- worship times would be orderly. Why is Paul so concerned with orderliness in church gatherings? Well, because when our sin distracts or inhibits the worship, uh, worship, we are actually operating as unwitting agents of Satan. Here's what I mean. It is their enemy's goal to keep us, to keep us as followers of God from worshiping God together faithfully. The last thing our enemy wants is believers united together, worshiping Jesus with one accord, using our gifts to build one another up. Therefore, when our sin disturbs, distracts, or disrupts the corporate worship of Jesus, it is a grievous matter that Paul says must be addressed. Think of it this way. If you had somebody, even if they were a great player on your football team, all right, I'm a Jacksonville Jaguars fan, you guys know this, Um, if you had somebody who's a great player on your football team, they do a lot of great things, but regularly after they make a great play, they stand over their opponent and they taunt them and they get a uh, uh, 15-yard penalty every single time they do that. What are they they doing when they do that? They are an unwitting agent of the other team. They're causing the other team's gain through their sin. In the same way, when we operate, when we're we're operating in anger and quarrels and we're not addressing these things, when we're not bringing these things before the Lord, then we are absolutely um, agents of the enemy. We're absolutely benefiting the enemy's plan. So, men, when you find your heart seething with anger, when there's a dispute that is unresolved, pray. Pray honestly, pray sincerely. Pray for the person you are angry at. Pray for the people who, who you're disputing with. Pray for their good. Pray for wisdom. Pray for grace. Uh, uh, and run towards forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. And by the way, this isn't just for men. Women, when you find your heart bubbling with anger, when you find, your, when you find fights that are wanting to come among you, do the same thing. This, this, w- this was aimed at the men because this was an issue for the men in Ephesus. But this is a universal principle. All of us, when we find this going on, we should go to the Lord in sincere prayer. When we are consistently praying earnestly for someone, it's hard to stay angry at them. It's hard, to not seeing them to start, it's hard to not start seeing them the way Jesus sees them. Let's move on to verse 9 and 10. I don't want this sermon to be the Snyder Cut of the sermon. I want to try to move quickly, ideally. Verse 9 and 10 says this. Likewise, also women should adorn themselves res- with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, and not, uh, not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for a woman who profess godliness, with women who profess godliness. Paul moves on to the women. He starts off by addressing an issue with the men who were, who were causing disruption in worship through their anger and quarreling. Now he moves on to women who are causing distraction in worship through their clothing. There was a problem with certain women in Ephesus. We know this based on this text, based on what we'll see in chapter 5, and, uh, and back in chapter 1 when he says certain persons, which is a gender neutral term. There was a problem with certain women in Ephesus wearing um, over the top clothing, hair with braids that had uh, gold and pearls woven into it. This was not actually that surprising given, the, given what we know about first century Ephesus. I mentioned to you in the first week that the church in Ephesus was struggling with the problem of syncretism. Now, if you don't remember what syncretism is, syncretism is when we take, um, when we take the timeless truth of God's word and we seek to marry it to cultural ideas. So you might, you might see things like Christian nationalism, where people try to marry being an American patriot to being a Christian, and they try to merge these two in an unholy way. This was happening in Ephesus. They were syncretizing the gospel to their, their Ephesian way of life, specifically with the worship of Artemis. They were teaching bad doctrine that was born out of a belief in a myth about Eve. Be, uh, they believed that Eve was created first, that she didn't eat of the fruit, and that she was undefiled and she was only defiled when she came into union with, with, uh, with Adam. The name of this belief, if you want to look it up your, uh, afterwards, it's called proto-Gnosticism. Basically, this myth had infected the early church. This belief had infected the early church. In Ephesus, because it basically took Artemis out of their worship and inserted Eve in, because, because Artemis was born first. Artemis was not defiled. Artemis was all these good things to the Ephesians, so they just basically plugged Eve in as Artemis. Moreover, just like with the cult of Artemis, um, the the cult of Artemis it was uh, uh, it, the cult of Artemis uh, uh, placed women in positions of authority. Not based on their knowledge, not based on anything of like this, but rather based on the fact that they were uh, uh, virgins uh, and they, they had devoted them, given themselves over to Artemis. They were the right gender from the right family and, uh, and, and they hadn't been despoiled by evil men. This, this same belief had infiltrated the church. We see this when we get, when, we'll see this when we get into chapter 4, that they were teaching that women should uh, uh, not get married and that there were certain sorts of ascetic lifestyle things that they should take part in. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. So why do I, uh, why do I tell you all this? Because it helps you see um, what Paul is actually addressing. You see, the, um, the type of dress that Paul is prohibiting is the exact type of dress that a priestess Of Artemis would wear. In fact, uh, you could read it yourself if you want to look up. um, If you want to waste an hour or a couple hours of your day, you can read a first-century penny dreadful novel called *Ephesiasica*. It's kind of what a lot of people think *Romeo and Juliet* was based on. And it has a priestess of Artemis, and the way it describes her being dressed is having intricate braids with all sorts of pearls and gold in her hair, and wearing what a purple dress. And if you don't know, uh, back in the first century, purple was uh, was the most expensive, ostentatious way of dressing. If you had purple, you were basically royalty or extremely rich. This is what the priestess of Artemis of Artemis would wear, and it seems as though that there were the, these these uh, these certain women that were in, the, in the, uh, the Ephesian church were seeming to emulate that in the way that they were dressing. In, in that era, the way they were dressing is as ostentatious as it gets. It screams, look at me, look at me. They were not only seeking to em, uh, emulate the, the priestess of Artemis, in the way that they dressed, but rather they were also seeking to assume authority over the church based on their status as a virgin from the right lineage. So Paul writes to Timothy, instructing uh, instructing him to teach the women of Ephesus not to dress in these elaborate, ostentatious um, ways that, in all this apparel. Why? Because it was drawing attention to themselves and uh, and away from Jesus. It was a distraction in worship and served to disrupt the worship of Jesus which is of primary importance. Paul says that the women are to dress in respectable apparel it says with modest uh, modest uh, with modesty and self-control. These three words here respectable is the word kosmios it means orderly virtuous or decent the the word modesty here is the word um aidos in greek which means uh, modesty or in a way that doesn't bring shame. If any of you have the King James A's, it says shamefacedly. And then the last word is sophrosune, which is self-control. That means sobriety or rational dress, uh, self-control. This would have been one of the primary virtues of a Greek, woman, a Greek woman should have. Now, before we go any further, I want to give a short excursus on what modesty is. I want to start by saying that actually modesty is a subject that I avoided um, for, most of, uh, for most of my ministry career mostly because the way I had seen it handled in the body of Christ always left me feeling gross. The arguments that I heard growing up were something like this. Girls, you better cover up because if you don't, you're going to cause these men to lust. In fact, the worst of these arguments said something like this. They said, if you dress like a harlot, you deserve to be treated like a harlot. Maybe you've heard these things before. Before we go any further, I want to say that this ideology is categorically false. Moreover, men, if you think it's acceptable to leer at a woman because she's scantily clad, no. Just no. Even if someone is intentionally seeking perverse attention through their dress, our hearts should break for them, not burn with lust for them. We should pray for them that they would be set free from the bondage that they are in. So what is modesty then? If it's not that, what I just said. Well, modesty is simply put, is dressing for the glory of God. Is not making a spectacle of yourself with your dress. Why? Because when we make a spectacle of, of ourselves in the way we dress, it becomes about our glory and not God and his glory. I want you to get this. Modesty is a heart issue, not a clothing issue. So what does modesty look like practically based on this text, based on what we, the, the three words we saw? Well, it looks like wearing appropriate clothing for the context. For example, if you wore a prom dress to the swimming pool, it would be immodest. It would be inappropriate. If you, uh, uh, moreover, if you wore a swimsuit to the prom, it would be inappropriate. It would be immodest. It would, it would, it would be breaking the rules here the, the, uh, that Paul is putting forward. Kids, if you wore your Halloween costume to a wedding, it would be immodest. You catching what I'm saying? It doesn't just mean sexually lewd dress. It means any kind of dress that is meant to draw attention to me and away from Christ, and especially when it comes to the corporate gathering of worship. Now, I want you to hear this. Culture plays a huge role in determining modesty because culture, in many ways, defines what is culturally appropriate. What is contextually appropriate, I mean. The hard part of this is culture is always shifting and it changes from place to place. This is why, this is why it's so important. I want you to get this. This is why it's so important to be slow to rebuke someone for a modesty and quick to ask questions that will help you understand their motives and their perspective. And if... If in those questionings you, you see a sinful heart that is desiring self-glory, then you rebuke that gently, not drawing attention to the clothes that they're wearing, but to the heart that is seeking my own glory. No clothing is inherently immodest because immodesty is a heart issue. So before we move forward, I, 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 I want to make this clear. This passage is dealing with women and an issue specifically with women in the Ephesian church, but modesty is not just a woman's issue. Men can be just as immodest as women. In fact, I can tell you this. Um, it probably doesn't happen in Kodiak as much, but when I was a, a, a youth pastor down in Florida, um, I, all the, it, it was interesting. All the young men who had, had six-packs and had been working, re, working out really hard, they always found a reason whenever they were doing anything outside to take their shirt off. Have you ever noticed that? But none of the guys who were kind of overweight did. But for some reason all the young men who were this, and, and you might say, why did they do that? Well, I think I think their hearts were in the same place as anybody else. They were wanting to draw attention to themselves saying, look at me, look at all the hard work I've done in the gym, look at all these things, please look at me, don't look to Jesus, look to me, look how glorious I am. I can tell you I struggled with some culturally culturally appropriate ways of dressing in Nazareth. I found out after I moved to Nazareth that though it is always like a thousand degrees there, men always wear pants. Children wear shorts, but men do not wear shorts. Men wear pants. So I always had to wear jeans or pants of some sort when I was in Nazareth, and I can tell you, I hated it. I was like, why? It's so hot. But they did. And wanting to be someone who dressed modestly within the culture, wanting to be somebody who didn't draw attention to myself with the way that I dressed, I absolutely dressed in that way. I can tell you, there was a young man who who was not... Um, who, who was an American who was living in Nazareth, and he, w- he had been living there for a while. And one day he showed up for a guy's night at my house, and he had walked across town, and he had decided that, uh, uh, to wear his kilt across Nazareth. Now, I want you to understand something. Uh, that, his kilt was a Welsh kilt, not a Scottish kilt. So it looked a lot more like a Japanese schoolgirl dress than it did a kilt. And he walked across the whole town making a spectacle of himself. I'm sure that every single person who drove by did this while they were driving by Um, him, not because it was so terrible or because it was so bad, but because absolutely he was making a spectacle of himself. Men can absolutely be just as immodest in the way they dress as women. So we all should seek in in the way that we dress to draw attention to Jesus and not to ourselves. So let's get back to our text. Verse 8, I'm sorry, verses, uh, uh, yeah, verse 8 says that men were disturbing worship through anger and quarrels, and Paul exhorts them to pray, lifting holy hands. Verses 9 and 10, that there were certain women who were distracting in worship through their ostentatious dress, and Paul instructs them to dress with respectable, modest apparel. Now, verses 11 through 15, this is the meatiest portion of the text. In this section, Paul is going to address women who are disrupting worship through deceitful domineering. Let's read verses 11 through 15, and then we'll go through verse by verse. It says this, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but uh, the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I'm sure that text is very clear, and I don't need to do any explanation. Let's start with verse 11. Verse 11, at first glance, might sound chauvinistic. Let a woman learn in, in quietness and in all submission. Many of you probably read it this way. But actually, I believe, believe it or not, I think you might have it backwards. I think the, the person who would have read it in the original context would have taken something very differently than what you're taking from it. You see, women uh, uh, in most of, uh, most of the Roman world in the first century, all, all throughout the empire, were not generally educated. Jewish women received some education, but not a lot, not nearly as much as men. And Paul here is instructing Timothy to teach these women the truth. So that they might walk in the truth. That would be countercultural. How does Paul say that these women should learn? Well, he says they should learn in quietness and submission. Um, this word quietness is the same word we see up at the beginning of chapter 2 when it says that we should live a quiet life. Doesn't mean we should be silent. It means, that we, uh, it means that the picture here is that we're not making a spectacle of ourselves. We're not constantly talking, but rather we are turning off our transmitter and we are turning on our receiver. So that when we come to, be, to learning, if you come with your transmitter on, when you come to a learning environment, what happens? You don't learn anything because you're too busy talking. You're too busy transmitting. So Paul is saying, no, in quietness, we, I, I want you to learn. And then in submission, simply put, this is coming under the leadership of the teacher. Letting them teach you mold, and mold your thinking so that you might, uh, so they might help you mature. I want you to hear this. This is how all of us are to learn. All of us are to learn. Not just women. Men and women, when we learn, we come in quietness. We listen to the teacher. We, we, we try to receive everything they can. And we come in submission to their leadership. We come listening to them and seeking to learn from them. Ashley is a coach of the track and the cross-country team. and I want you to imagine she had a student on her team who uh, she's trying to coach, trying to teach them how to do a specific task, and instead of listening, they're constantly saying how they know how to do it better. And then when she gives them instructions on how to do a certain thing, they say, actually, no, I'm going to do it my way. Would you think that person would be a good athlete? Would you think that person would, would be coached very well? No, this is what's going on here is that these women were not willing to listen and to learn and to be built up to mature so that they might be able to edify the body and use their gifts for the glory of God, but rather they were too busy seeking to dominate and uh, and teach, which we'll see in just a moment. Paul doesn't say throw these women out of the church. Paul says to Timothy, teach these women. Now let's move on to, to verse 12. We're going to take it phrase by phrase because... Um, I'm going to do something here, just I want you to go. We're going to go deep into the Greek here. And I want to apologize for this because I don't like to do this in a sermon. However, I think there's some, some helpful things to draw out when we get into this. So it says, Paul says, first of all, he says, I do not permit a woman. Uh, properly rendered from Greek, it says, I am not allowing or I am not permitting a woman. Some have tried to argue that Paul's use of the first person in the present, the present progressive tense um, is, is, is meaning that basically this is uh, Paul's personal conviction and not a command. But I want to tell you, I've researched this thoroughly, and I can tell you that that is not what the Greek seems to indicate. In fact, it seems to indicate the opposite. Paul is clearly giving Timothy an instruction here on how to address these women who were disrupting worship and making it about themselves and not Jesus. So Paul says, first of all, I am not permitting, and then he says uh, women, all right, that word women here is the word gune, which can mean woman or wife. Some have tried to say that this means wife and not woman, but it, for that to be the case, that that would that would make this uh, uh, about a household, not a the corporate worship gathering. But it seems that Paul, in all of his addressing here, he's talking about the corporate worship, orderly worship. So, given the context of 1 Timothy two, I think that um, that he's likely addressing these certain women who are who are seeking uh, to assume authority in corporate worship and teach false doctrine. So we see Paul is saying, "I'm not permitting a woman," and then he says. To do two things, to teach or take authority. Now the word teach is Didasco, which it it's simply, whenever you see teach in the Bible, you generally see it as didasco. It's just a simple, simple word. It, it has it's pretty commonly used. But the second word is is the word that word exercise authority. It's the word authenteo. And it is a very uncommon word. In fact, it's only used once in the Bible and only used about a dozen times in contemporaneous uh, Greek, meaning Oh, around the time of Paul, we only have about 12 usages of this, and only about six of them are used in the verb form that it's used here. It is, uh, it, like I said, it's not the normal word. There's a normal word for authority that Paul could have grabbed, but Paul intentionally grabs for an obscure word that denotes something very distinct. See, this word, every time we see it used, it denotes harsh authority, slave master authority, something to the effect of this, authority that is built on position and, 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 and authoritative structures. I'll give you one quick example, although I don't have it in my notes here. Uh, one, of the quick, one of the examples I read was when it was used around the time of Paul. There was, uh, there was a, a guy writing an apology letter to uh, an, uh, one patrician, writing a, an apology letter to another patrician. These are high-class people. And he's writing an apology letter saying, basically, um, I used authenteo on your slave to compel him to pay a ferry master that he was unwilling to pay. So they were both on a ferry, the slave was unwilling to pay his fare on the ferry and the patrician basically took uh, compelled the, the slave to pay the fare. And he's writing an apology letter because he used authenteo on another man's slave, which he shouldn't have done. That's the most contemporary in his use so it's it's the it's the the authority of a slave master, it's harsh authority, it's compelled authority. Before we go any further, I want to I give, give you a picture of what authority looks like in the New Testament, because it's very different than what you might think. The New Testament, Jesus and Paul and all over, turns authority structures on their head. In the Greco-Roman world, there was a clear stratification of society. You were here, if you were here, you could, you could exploit the people underneath you. In fact, the people on top um, used and oftentimes exploited those who are on the bottom for their own gain. This was true in first century Israel. We see this in Israel, but we also see it all throughout the empire. Jesus regularly rebuked his disciples when they fell into the pattern of seeking to elevate themselves over others. In fact, we see this in Mark chapter 10. Um, if you want to go there, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45, you'll see it right there. Uh, in Mark 10, uh, uh, James and John ask Jesus for an elevated position. They say, Jesus, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? you might think that's not a big deal what he, what they're really saying is Jesus can we assume authority over all the rest of the disciples can we be in this authoritative position in verse 42 let's let's read verse 42 it says this and Jesus knowing that oh, I'm sorry and Jesus called them to him and said to them you know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and that their great one Great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be a servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus makes it clear that any authority you have in the kingdom is meant to serve. True leadership looks like Jesus, when he washed his disciples' feet. This isn't just Jesus, by the way. Paul, um, Paul regularly does not dominate the churches, but rather builds them up, protects them. This is what he does. This is what church leaders do. They build up the flock and they protect the flock. In fact, the words that are used for pastor, what do we see? We use the word, hear the word, pastor. What does that mean? It means shepherd. What, what do shepherds do? They, they, the sheep don't serve the shepherd. The shepherd serves the sheep. The shepherd takes the sheep to where they might be, uh, where, they, where they might get be nourished and built up. The, sh- the shepherd protects the sheep from wolves. Do the sheep do the sheep wash the shepherd's feet? No. The overseer. That's the second word. Those are people who watch over and protect. This is not a boss man, not somebody, not somebody who's a great one, as Jesus said. But no, an overseer, someone who watches over and takes care of those under their care. And then finally, the word elder, which is the word. Uh, for mature man or old man, the picture here is somebody who is somebody who is mature and who 's going to use their gifts not for self gain but for, but for the benefit of others this isn 't just church authority this is all authority in the Bible by the way. all the authority that we see in the New Testament that 's given to any person is meant for service is meant to build up those in your care and to, uh, and to protect them. Husbands who are called uh, uh, you, know, you know that Ephesians five, 5, Ephesians 5 passage. You know what's interesting? It never says, husbands, lead your wives. Husbands, assume authority over your wives. What does it say? Do You guys remember what it says? It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Pour yourself out for your wives. Uh, uh, wash your wives with the, word, uh, with the word of God. Build them up. Encourage them. Love them. Protect them. Grow them up in the Lord. If authority is ever being used as a means of personal gain, Self-protection or domineering, it has ceased to be biblical, and it's completely out of sync with Christ-likeness. So with that being said, back to the text, Paul is saying that he doesn't allow a woman to teach or assume a domineering slave master-like authority over the church, which nobody should, by the way. Now, we're going to go a little bit deeper into the Greek, and then then we'll pop back out, okay? Now we see... Uh, there, there's two words that are used to connect, teach, and uh, and uh, uh, assume authority. the, the first word, it, the, it's "uk" and "ude." Now, it, these terms uh, uh, are appear as neither or nor, but when they when they when "uk" and "ude" are used in Greek, they are usually two concepts that uh, uh, that that they usually take two concepts and they bring them together to make a cohesive whole. So properly rendered, Paul is saying something like this. I am not permitting a woman to assume a a domineering authoritative teaching role over men. This idea fits with the rest of the passage. Evidently, there were women who, uh, who were coming into worship with ostentatious dress, disrupting worship by seizing control and teaching false doctrine. Paul is saying to Timothy, I will not let this go. This is harming the body of Christ. Timothy put a stop to it. Verses 13 and 14. Let's read them. Oh, I'm in the wrong passage. Verses 13 and 14, Paul goes on to, to speak to the idea of the Ephesian uh, uh, what's going uh, uh, the let me, let's let's just read it. I'll get to the, I'll get to the passage. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became uh, became a transgressor. Paul is uh, uh, sucking the wind from the sails of these proto-Gnostic women by making it clear that Eve was not the one who was created first, as their proto-Gnosticism would say. That Eve did willingly take of the apple. Eve was actually the first one who was deceived. They are, they, just because they are women and just because they, they, they dress in this dress and just because they, they, they they come from this virgin background, they cannot come and claim authority based on these characteristics. No, Paul is saying, no, your belief in these myths is not true. The truth is, is that uh, Adam was formed first and Eve was born from him, not vice versa. And that Eve took the apple willingly, just like, uh, uh, just, just like the, Bi- the Bible says. Basically in saying this, he is undermining any claim to authority they had by being undefiled by men. Just to be clear, I want, you, I, want to hear, I want you to hear what this text does not say. This text does not say that women need to sit down and be quiet because Eve was such a terrible sinner. Nor, does this tec- nor is this text enshrining men as, uh, as the proper authority because they were created first and deceived second. No, it's a clarification of bad doctrine that was used to hijack worship in first century Ephesus. All right, let's move to verse 15. Verse 15 says this, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, this whole passage, but especially this verse, more ink has been spilled on this passage than just about any other in the New Testament because nobody really knows what it means. Now, there are lots of explanations. In fact, I've read a lot of books on, on this kind of stuff trying to get at it. So I'm going to give you my best understanding of what I think this means. And uh, if you come to me and say, I think it means something different, I'm not going to fight with you. The best explanation I can see comes from the immense fear that women had about childbirth. Low estimates say that about 30% of women would die um, at some point during their life of childbirth. And even more children died in childbirth. So you can imagine that having a baby, just like it is today, but especially more so back then, was a scary time. And when we are afraid, what do we do? We can easily turn to anything that we think might help protect us. For women living in Ephesus, this could easily be Artemis or some Eve-Artemis hybrid that the Ephesian, that these, these, cult, these people were bringing in. Why? Because Eve was the goddess of midwifery, among other things. And Paul is essentially saying that if you are a follower of Jesus, meaning you put your faith in him and you are living for him, that's the end of verse 15, then you do not need to fear anything in childbirth. Why? Because you will be saved through childbearing. Though you're in your childbearing, when you're going through this, you'll be saved. The word saved here can mean two things. It can mean being physically saved or it's the word we rendered as being spiritually saved. And I think Paul means uh, both of those things here. Followers of Jesus will be safe no matter what happens during childbirth because they have committed their lives to Jesus. Why? Because the offspring of Eve made it so that you and I might be saved through his perfect life and atoning death, conquering the powers of darkness, crushing the head of the snake, ransoming us from our bondage and saving us from our sin and adopting us as children of God. uh, we, We know that we will be saved by putting our faith and trust in Jesus, no matter what situation happens. Therefore, we can trust that God is working in all things together for our good even in scary times like childbirth. And he has a plan, a good plan for us. Even if we die, death for us is gain, not loss. I think Paul is saying right here, basically, no matter what happens, whether you live or you die during childbirth, you will be saved. I know this is scary, and I know you want to be tempted to go back towards Artemis worship when you're having a child, but ultimately you can trust God that he has a good plan and that he will take care of you if you are his. And whether that means living or dying, you uh, uh, God, God is will, will is willing to work these things together for your good. So circling around to orderly worship. Paul, Paul is saying to, uh, that there are men who are disturbing worship through their anger and their quarreling. And he, and he is saying to them, pray. He's saying to women who are distracting with their ostentatious dress, he is saying to these women, he's saying to these women, dress in appropriate ways that bring glory to God, that draw attention to Jesus, not yourself. And to the women who were disrupting worship, who were intentionally seeking to take, take, uh, take domineering control and teach false teachings, Paul is, Paul is saying to, these, to, these, uh, to Timothy to um, have these women sit and learn, not allow them to teach. Jesus is to be primary in our worship. And anything that inhibits this must be addressed. When you, when you come to church every single morning, if, if it's about you and your glory, if it's about what people might think of you, if, you were, if you're worried about anything else except for glorifying Jesus, uh, glorifying Jesus when you come on a Sunday morning, I can, I, I'm telling you that you're falling into line with some of the issues that we see in this chapter, especially if your sin in this regard is disrupting worship, if it's causing worship to come out of order. So my challenge to you this morning is... Um, to every Sunday when you come here, come prepared to to receive, come prepared to draw your attention to Jesus, to focus on him and to do nothing to build your own kingdom, but to build Christ's kingdom for his glory. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Not to live for ourselves, but to live for him and his glory alone. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I pray that God, it would challenge us, it would grow us, it would shape us. Lord, I pray that as we approach hard texts like this, Lord, I pray that you would use these texts to build us up. Lord, to deepen our faith. Lord, to grow grow us in our understanding of your word. Lord Jesus, I pray that God you would work for your glory um, this morning. Lord, I pray that for those who who've been in bondage to um, almost almost having a hidden hatred towards you based on their understanding of these this text. Lord, I pray that God you would soften their heart this morning, and Lord that they would come to enjoy your glory. L- L- Lord. The, The glory that is to be found in knowing you, and enjoying you, Lord Jesus. I pray that God you would tear down strongholds and footholds in the lives of followers of Jesus here this morning. Lord, I love you and I praise you. I ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you.